If you attended a liberal arts school at any point in the past several decades, or have spent more than a few moments on social media, you've no doubt encountered debates and advocacy involving the themes of decolonization, representation, and identity politics. This stuff is now the meat and potatoes of a lot of the culture war in the West, certainly in the United States, and of course it continues to animate many of the discussions happening in academia. Take my word for it, I've dropped out of two doctoral programs in the past 14 years. Decolonization and identity politics have also been major subjects when it comes to the former Soviet Union, especially in Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion. As a matter of fact, even identifying the region as former Soviet or post-Soviet carries the baggage of a potentially Moscow-centric gaze, denying agency, independence, and maybe dignity to all the former subjects, former colonies captured in the USSR. I'm actually quite nervous even talking about this stuff because this genre of analysis, this philosophy, perspective, or whatever it ought to be called, is so sensitive to language. It's very easy here to misspeak and to expose myself as ignorant or something even worse. Even reading about these subjects can be tricky, and it was with this anxiety in mind that I read an essay recently published in New Left Review by a Ukrainian scholar titled Ukrainian Voices? that accuses the West's mainstream talk of decolonization in Ukraine of being too much about symbols and identity and not enough about social transformation. Even Kiev's post-war plans are conformist and neoliberal, not like a program for building a stronger sovereign state, but like a pitch to foreign investors for a startup. For this week's show, I spoke to the author of that article, sociologist Volodymyr Ishenka. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. To those of you who celebrated, I hope you had a good Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever you do around this time of year, around the solstice, to forget the miserable cold and the lack of sunlight. New Year's is just a couple of days away now at the time that I'm recording this, so have a good holiday there, too. For many of our listeners, I know New Year's is the main winter holiday, so Godspeed to you this weekend. Before jumping into today's interview, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from our international audience to sustain our work. Every day, millions of people from Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. In English, our team delivers Medusa's most important stories and reaches thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with a special newsletter and podcast. This one, in fact. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. All right, let's get to this week's show. As I mentioned moments ago, I spoke to sociologist Volodymyr Ishenka, a research associate with the Institute of East European Studies at the Free University of Berlin, about his recent article in New Left Review, which is a British bi-monthly journal. The article has caused something of a stir, at least among scholars working in the relevant fields, Ukraine, decolonization, and so on and with some journalists and others who comment for popular audiences about these subjects. Now, to get the most out of the interview that follows, I recommend reading the article first. It's a, isn't that a bold suggestion? If you haven't already, consider pausing this podcast and having a look. It's just 3,200 words. It takes maybe 15 minutes to read. Some of Dr. Ashenka's main points that led to my questions are his arguments that decolonization in the Ukrainian context is largely divorced 
from what he calls social revolution and social transformation. In the article, he also warns that most of the Ukrainian experts with access to Western academia are English-speaking, West-connected intellectuals. Privileged voices, he calls them, who are legitimated to speak on behalf of the group. Near the end of the essay, he emphasizes Ukraine's place in the Soviet project, which he describes as the greatest social revolution and modernization breakthrough in human history, leading to some allegations of Soviet nostalgia. We talked about that. And that's just a bit of what's in the article, and it's only part of what Dr. Ashenka and I discussed in the interview. But enough introduction. Let's get to it. Originally, this was a reflection on the uh, many of the academics and academic events in which I participated or in which right. I followed. And I've actually uh, talked on the arguments of this essay at some of the academic conferences. Mm-hmm. And as it was uh, developing from some short reaction, like a blog format to like a longer essay, uh, and also got a quite distinct uh, left-wing perspective in the end, although it addresses the Ukrainian scholars, intellectuals, artists in general. But of course, it's obviously that uh, I'm speaking from one of the possible left-wing perspectives. Sure. What kind of response did you get when you when you presented some of these ideas at, at panels? Because I've Obviously, anybody can see the response on Twitter. There's a lot of praise. There's a lot of criticism. A lot of it has to. A lot of it plays into the same identity politics observations that you make in the article, right? You, there are critics who, yeah. who, who no longer consider you Ukrainian because you, because of things you say. Um, what, what, what was the response from fellow academics when you presented it in person? Uh, different responses. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, at the first, I, I discussed this idea that. Uh, a panel on Ukrainian sociology, uh, which was within the framework of the Polish Sociological Association Congress, together with other Ukrainian sociologists, and uh, I mean there were some some positive reactions, some more critical reactions, as just like like normal thing. Yeah. But yeah, so some some people very explicitly felt that. Yeah, there are some real issues uh, mm-hmm. about uh, representation of Ukraine and how we talk about Ukraine and what we could talk better about Ukraine. Right. And yeah, so that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's of course a much more like uh, uh, comfortable uh, discussion than on, twi- more than civil, on Twitter. More civil, yeah. yeah, Twitter is because <laughs> also it's... <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> well, so so let's get into some of the things you 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 argue in the in the essay. You say that I mean, my impression was that when you when you write about decolonization, you describe it as sort of having lost its way. Like after World War II, it had this focus on being linked to social revolution, social transformation, and now it's shifted toward identity politics and and what you describe as recognition within the institutions. And so I was really I wanted you to explain what you mean here, specifically in the context of Ukraine. For an American, at least, it's very interesting, I think, to hear any kind of criticism of what might be described as identity politics from the left, because it's usually associated with, like, Republicans complaining about woke politics or something like that. And that's clearly not where you're coming from. So what exactly, how does this work exactly? Yeah, that's that's obviously not not uh, any kind of, like, conservative criticism of the identity politics. And I've been trying to very clearly keep this distance from them. And 
one thing that I believe it's important to remember that identity politics had actually very radical roots. It had roots in the 1960s anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist movements. And the black power movement, the second wave of feminism, they were organically connected with a broader project of social transformation. And as you, as you said, the decolonization, which was happening in the 1960s on the biggest scale in the whole human history with the dissolution of the biggest European colonial empires, it was not simply about the solution. It was not simply about building new states on new identities. It was crucially the question of the social transformation. So specifically about the overcoming the deficiencies of colonial economies via import substitution programs, via the building of the robust, uh, strong development, developmental states. And this agenda has been kind of like lost. And yeah, we've been living through the period of neoliberalism when the discussion about stronger state has become not so like trendy as it was before. And we've uh, like theoretically, intellectually, the critical political economic, critical Marxist traditions, they've been also losing their appeal in the broader public. Maybe now it's actually regaining their positions, but like speaking about like uh, what, what was happening like a decade ago, 15 years ago, that was clearly true. And especially if, if we are speaking about Eastern Europe, where the left is quite weak and where the critical left uh, theories and traditions are also very much uh, underdeveloped. And on the other hand, the international left uh, has quite not sufficient knowledge about the region also to, to provide convincing analysis mm -hmm. of that, which uh, I mean, at, at the moment when, when, when the region is actually at the core of the global politics, this is like most urgently needed. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's uh, where I'm, I'm talking about. Right. They need to, recon to, rec to reconsider the, what, what, what is the decolonization now. Sure. And there is, of course, the very specific discussion about decolonization in Ukraine, which goes on uh, both within the Ukrainian public sphere, but also in the West, mm. among the Western intellectuals, or among like, Ukrainians who are speaking at uh, international events and also speaking about decolonization. And, uh, uh, so far, it's been unfortunately limited to basically getting rid of uh, the Russian mm -hmm. perceived as imperialist oppressor, as a colonial power against Ukraine. And unfortunately, not about fundamental social transformation of, of the Ukrainian state and society. And now the question is, if you are defending Ukrainian state against an existential threat, what kind of state is supposed to be? And this discussion is unfortunately quite underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. Are you skeptical of decolonization as a project in Ukraine at all? Or is it merely when it's articulated in terms of identity politics, as in terms of anything that is not neoliberal is Russian or is locally corrupt or something, so excusing it somehow? Is there a version of decolonization of Ukraine that 
is socially transformative? Like, and what, what does that look like? Is it just the state being more involved in raising the well-being of people? Or what exactly is like a good or a alternative version of Ukrainian decolonization that isn't so focused on neoliberalism or on on you know on Russia, which is obviously a difficult to avoid given the invasion and all that. Yeah, sure. No, I I, I, be, I believe we, we can productively speak about decolonization in the Ukrainian context, mm -hmm. and that would also include the discussion about the strongest sovereign state, which is unfortunately quite weak in relation to Ukraine. So we understand basically defense of sovereignty against Russia. Mm -hmm. What about defense of sovereignty against uh, transnational capital? And if you look uh, realistically at uh, economic policies of the Ukrainian government, which uh, they are doing now, we see kind of like a very weird experiments which combine some of the elements of the war economy, which uh, are obviously necessary, right with some really weird neoliberal experiments, uh, continuing like with privatization, with, with quite extreme labor regulation mm -hmm. during the wartime, where you would like objectively expect something the opposite, the mobilization of the whole society uh, against the existential threat, and which where the state would, would, would like be obviously the central agent it requires coordination of economy of the society over everything for in order to fight back the invasion. Right. That, that that kind of like not happening, and and it is connected to a very limited understanding of uh, what decolonization could be. And of course, especially in the intellectual field, right. you are speaking about like overcoming your Russian cultural imperialism. On the on Ukraine, but also on broad the Eastern European region, yeah. uh, not really challenging uh, quite um, the series and narratives uh, connected with the Western colonialism and Western imperialism, and this transforms our understanding of colonization in a very weird and I, I believe ultimately unproductive, and ultimately short-sighted for Ukraine and Ukrainian. Uh, intellectuals and scholars way because if we are basically are limited to the identity politics when we are simply the ukrainian voices and there is also of course the, the problem of uh, how how exactly we represent those big complex nation mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of which we may speak it's a, it's a sh ultimately a short-sighted strategy because if you are simply recognized for our Ukrainianness, we may be marginalized again with the next round of geopolitical realignment when we won't be so kind of like useful for the for the Western elites. One of the big points of your article is that there are privileged voices that are legitimated, right, to speak on behalf of all Ukrainians and to represent them, and that these people are typically English-speaking, Western-connected intellectuals who are either working in Kiev or Lviv. It's it, 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 that they they're kind of 
they're selected as the representatives and they're, they're I guess, quoted the most, they're invited to the most panels and brought on television, you know, the, the most often. If these are the privileged people by virtue of their access, what kind of stories would we be hearing in your view if we were somehow able to extend our reach? I mean, I know that we've been talking, you've, you've been talking about how an alternate form of decolonization in Ukraine would shine a light on, I guess, the excesses or the deficiencies of neoliberalism. Are you suggesting that, like, we would be talking to factory workers who are who have been exploited by multinational corporations, or like, what exactly? What are the other perspectives out there? Just, I mean, I know there's an infinity of them. Or is there there are as many experiences there are as there are people? But like, are there general categories that we're missing that? you could describe for for listeners that you know to give them a sense of kind of what they might be missing uh let me just emphasize that uh, this should be read not as some kind of like uh, attack on the right privileged uh, <laughs> stratum yeah because uh, i mean uh, like i'm also like a kind of like a west connected english speaking intellectual here we are speaking english like originally yes. from ukraine <laughs> and so i'm a kind of like quite vulnerable to right uh, to be immediately uh, yes. fought back um, <laughs> yeah. for, for, for this uh, thing. And uh, I mean, and this is primarily this is a call about self-awareness. So obviously in, at the international panels and especially uh, like of the more like intellectual academic level, you would get a very specific kind of people, those who can mm-hmm. fluently speak English, those who have a high uh, um, intellectual capacity and you know, like a- academic capital and so on and so forth. And so this is somehow like a natural selection of these people. But then let's just be self-aware on behalf of whom we could actually speak and reflect on on our positions on our, and on the diversity of the Ukrainian society. Right? The, from the Western perspective, that would be also kind of like useful and, 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 and better to speak to a larger, to larger groups uh, in, in the Ukrainian society. And the factory workers maybe would not be participating in the academic panels, but obviously that those who, right. they, they can speak on behalf of our, themselves uh, for, for the media. Also, I, I was not even discussing the, the media themselves, but the, the intellectual academic events. Mm-hmm. But obviously, Ukraine is also regionally diverse, and we could uh, speak also to the more, more of the people who, who have origin in the southern and eastern parts of Ukraine, which are under the direct and the most direct threat from, from the Russian invasion. But even a more important point, I mean, including more and more and more and more voices workers, women, LGBT, doesn't solve the fundamentally flawed logic of the identity politics. So what we actually need to do is to overcome this particularism when we are kind of speaking on behalf of a centralized group that supposedly shares one and the same experience. Uh, and especially for the intellectuals and scholars, we should aim for the, to contribute to the universal problems, to the universal issues. And we are at this moment when there's so much attention to Ukraine, and we also possess our 
advantage in a deep knowledge of the country and also the larger Eastern European or Soviet region, we can contribute with this knowledge to a wide range of the globally relevant problems, starting from the uh, contemporary revolutions in which, which we had in Ukraine three during the life of just one generation, about the cynical uh, oligarchic, let's say paternalist or technocratic politics, which is perceived by the people as something very distant from them and which then provokes the various anti-establishment parties, populist leaders, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And le let's remember that uh, Zelensky was elected in 2019 as a person, basically, as a, as, a, as a protest vote against an oligarch, Petro Poroshenko. And Zelensky, with zero political experience, won 73%. And this is not simply a Ukrainian story. This is a story of uh, the rise of the populist leaders in many other countries of the world. And COVID pandemic, I mean, when, when the whole world was understanding how insufficiently we funded public health, which was in some countries, and quite many countries, was not adequate to respond to the pandemic threat. Right. In, in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine specifically, we've lived like so decades of the severely underfunded public health. What the, 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 the notorious discussion about East and West in Ukraine, like, uh, like severe regional cleavage. What can it say, for example, about the polarization in the United States between Democrats and Republicans or about the Remainers and Brexiters in the United Kingdom? Sure. So there are many, many globally relevant stories which we could, as Ukrainians, as the experts on Ukraine, contribute to and make Ukraine universally relevant. And, and, and obviously, it has not only the theoretical intellectual value, but also political value, because we would become more understandable for not simply for the Western elites, which have, which have their specific interests in Ukraine, but also for the majority of the humanity who look at this conflict, at the war in Ukraine, not through the eyes of the, for, of the Western elites, but through the eyes of those who were oppressed by them for centuries and felt quite, quite kind of like hesitating position, not actually uh, taking a side in this war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for, for, for Ukraine, it's, it's quite crucially important to win, not simply the elites in Europe or in the United States, but the sympathies of the majority of humanity. You have this part in the in the essay where you talk about how Ukraine could turn out to be the West's future, not 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 the other way around. And their recent experiences with sort of the extremes of post-Soviet neoliberalism or capitalism or whatever. That's there's a lot of lessons I suppose the West could draw there. You have that kind of like forward-looking recommendation, I guess. But you also you also argue that Ukrainians can draw on their on the Soviet experience. And I've seen some critics say that oh, this is this is the real point of the article. It's all just a celebration of the USSR. Um, why do you think reminding readers of Soviet, the Soviet experiment, Soviet universalism, why is that an important counter to the liberal democratic universalism that sort of is, is dominant today? Why is that something that people ought to remember? 
There is a big problem how to explain Ukraine in the universal terms. When the Western elites are trying to frame this conflict as democracy against authoritarianism, mm. it really doesn't work well because they're very clearly inconsistent in defending democracy. And, um, is that because is that because they're the West is hypocritical and that they you know they they support a, a more democratic country like Ukraine over Russia, but they still are friends with Saudi Arabia and so on. Or is it that you're saying the West is not democratic? I mean, what, how should people read that exactly? There are many problems, and one <laughs> is the yeah very inconsistent policies in relation to the countries like Saudi Arabia or Turkey, who wage their own brutal wars. The other problem is that actually quite many democracies in the global south take this hesitating, neutral position. Yeah. So if you, you cannot actually seriously claim this is like all democracies in one camp and all authoritarian countries in another camp. No, it just, that doesn't work like this. And mm -hmm. exactly, there the many problems with, democ with how democracy works, especially now in the Western countries. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, do you do you, when you when making these observations, which I, I think like academically they stand on their they stand obviously like you can there are many nuances these are complicated issues, but when I mean you're writing for for NLR, it's an academic style, but it's still it's a short essay. It's, it has a popular audience. When you when you press the send button when sending it to the editors, are you kind of thinking like oh gosh like I know people aren't gonna gonna like that <laughs> like is it difficult to do you find it difficult to say these things or uh, uh the things you mean which well things? just like to to art when to point out or to to say that the describing this as an ideological conflict between democracy and autocracy doesn't work you say it works poorly and you're talking about its reception among the global south among the world i mean p people aren't going to like hearing that that it's not that because it's that is how it is described certainly on social media but it's sort of, it's kind of the undertone of most of the war narratives, I would say. And so do you feel like you're being contrarian in the way that you write about this this conflict? Or is th that's just that's not how you're approaching it? I mean uh, I mean my I, I could be a contrarian to some very uh -huh. popular and dominant narratives, but that's clearly not uh, I'm not the only person who points to this. There have been multiple articles and pieces who actually pointed that instead of the democracy against authoritarianism conflict, we may have kind of like civilizational conflict. Mm -hmm. Because if if this ideological articulation of the conflict doesn't work, we simply end up with the West against the non-Western challenger. And then it's a question for the global South why they are supposed to be aligned with the West and not with the non-Western challenger. Mm -hmm. And some, some, some elites and some countries in the global south actually, like pretty obviously, align with Russia. And of, of course, this is, this is like very serious problem for, for the people who care, who, 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 who care about Ukraine, uh, really care. Is it a problem for ordinary Ukrainians, you think? I mean, like they're... They're, they're not getting the weapons they need to fight the Russians from Africa, as far as I understand. It's mostly coming from, you know, NATO. And so does it really matter if the dominant 
narrative of the war from the West serves the Western interests if like the if Ukraine needs the West to survive as an independent state? I mean, like what exactly what are the stakes here for ordinary Ukrainians in terms of how we talk about this as a conflict, whether it's ideological or not? Speaking about decolonization, right? If if our only hope is this continuous flow of the Western weapons to Ukraine, I mean, how sustainable it's going to be? Considering all the economic problems and all the political contestations and the elections in the United States and Republicans taking the Congress, and then, then they are starting questioning how exactly those uh, money from the U.S. budget are spent in Ukraine. This is, again, this is a danger. Then some different parties may come to power in the European Union. So I would say it would be very short-sighted to build a long-term strategy, basically betting on the continuous support of the Western elites who have their own interests and they may go into certain compromises mm -hmm. that may eventually not benefit Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And in, the, in this situation, it's obvious that Ukraine needs to look for broader alliances. And, and even on the basis of like winning the, uh, let's say, the public aspect of the war, I mean, if Ukraine is like continuously perceived as kind of like the frontier of the Western civilization, I mean, it just doesn't win the sympathies of the majority of the humanity because their interests are not exactly in the superiority of the Western countries. Do you feel like this gets, this becomes dangerous in terms of repeating the narrative that is dominant and you know that the Kremlin essentially propagates this notion that Ukraine has no agency. It's a, it's like a puppet state of the West. I mean, when we talk about the problem, how how problematic Ukrainian dependency on the West is, it seems like some people I would imagine would hear that and say, "Oh, that's a Kremlin talking point." You know, like Ukraine has agency. Well, why aren't you talking about Ukrainian agency? Are we are we missing Ukrainian agency? Are you saying Ukrainian agency needs to rely on more than? one ally, I guess, is what you're saying, and that that requires being more revolutionary in terms of decolonization? I mean, I, I'm throwing words around. I'm not sure I'm fully understanding what I'm saying. These, this is not, not exactly Oh, no, no I, I fully <laughs> understand what you're saying. But uh, let's recall that actually Putin is more like strategically and explicitly appeals to the global south. And if you recall his speech at the celebration of the annexation of the parts of Ukraine they just conquered this year and occupied. He explicitly put it into the narrative about decolonization again, that Russia is allegedly kind of like fighting the... Right. beating back the Anglo-Saxons. Like, yeah, the decolonization war against uh, the Western elites. And if Ukrainian uh, understanding of decolonization is simply about particularistic identity politics, it's just in an, in an inferior position against the Russian narrative. Okay. And you were asking about the relevance of the Soviet Union. 
Ukraine, as a part of the Soviet Union, was actually a part of the universal uh, movement, a part of the great social revolution that was inspiring so many people in the whole world. Millions of, uh, of, of the people in, in Europe, but also outside of Europe. Then Ukraine was like a crucial part of the, of the fight against the Nazi, the Nazi Germany. And millions of Ukrainians were fighting in the Red Army. Millions of Ukrainians were suffering from the war that uh, Nazis waged on, on, on Ukrainian territory. And we were part of the like, cutting-edge space exploration, of the cutting-edge studies in the uh, cybernetics, in the, in the vanguardist art and culture. And when we were part of that, we were universally relevant. And nowadays we need to find some way to get uh, once more the relevance for the whole world. And I believe that identity politics just wouldn't work in mm -hmm. this way. You don't think that's flirting with Soviet nostalgia? I mean, I, 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 I actually don't, under, uh, don't understand it as a nostalgia <laughs> uh -huh. uh, because it's, uh, it, it's about a forward-looking uh, project You've been a part of this, and we could build on this, and probably we should build on this. But of, of course, this is not sim it's just simply even impossible and crazy to say that we would kind of like reconstruct the Soviet Union. It's about remembering that, reclaiming this, feeling like normally proud for being a part of the universally relevant processes, and, and moving forward, obviously. Mm. I mean, the people who may feel kind of like more like anti-Soviet, also my feelings about, uh, about this uh, Soviet history, also kind of like biographically and also like, it's also like family histories. I mean, and, and, and we should also understand this as a part of Ukraine, as some, some, some organic part of it, not some, some kind of like, some colonial uh, oppression that imposed on us. I mean, like my family basically, basically moved from, let's say like my, 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 my grandfather was like herding some cattle in a village in Lugansk region, which was, has been now annexed by Russia. But my father was actually graduating from the most prestigious Moscow Physical Technical University Institute and then working in the Institute of Cybernetics, mm -hmm. working on the space exploration programs. So when I'm writing about this, it's also like a, a part of my, uh, part of my own history and not, not simply some, some kind of like ideological obsession with uh, the Sovietness or some, some kind of like hardcore left scene that uh, I believe some, some people perceived it that, that way. And of course, it's, uh, it's not a narrative that represents the majority of the Ukrainian population, but I would say it's, 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 it's been a typical narrative. It's been a typical history that is typical for uh, some significant and organic part of Ukraine which nowadays kind of like turns uh, into more like si it's, it's silenced and it's uh, into processes of this anti-communist and anti-Russian decolonization 
identity politics, it's just, uh, just being erased. But I believe that in order to, 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 to reclaim Ukraine's universal relevance, we, we could return to this and we, we, could, we could build on this. But this is not simply a nostalgia. These are the resources, the bricks from which we could build some forward-looking project. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard about a recent essay in New Left Review about decolonization, representation, and identity politics in Ukraine from the author, sociologist Volodymyr Yashenka, a research associate with the Institute of East European Studies at the Free University of Berlin. Remember to check the description of this episode of the podcast for a hyperlink to the article itself. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you for supporting our work at Medusa. We'll be back next year. (laughs) 